Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Martha Nussbaum, the author of the new book, The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. Nussbaum, who teaches at the University of Chicago, is a moral philosopher and the author of numerous books and articles on everything from the role of the humanities in society, the place of anger in politics and culture, aging, and ethnic conflict in India. Her latest is an attempt to diagnose and explore one of the things that currently ails us, which is the role of fear in our politics and life. Martha Nussbaum joins me now from the University of Chicago. Hi, Martha. Oh, thank you so much, Isaac. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I wanted to start by asking you, for people that haven't read a lot about your work or who don't don't know how you spend your time, um, I want you to talk a little bit, if you can, about how this book sort of fits into the larger project you've been working on as a philosopher. And I'm just going to read something from the preface of your book where you write, quote, academics can be too detached from human realities to do good work about the texture of human life. That's a risk inherent in academic freedom and tenure, wonderful institutions that did not protect philosophers of most earlier eras. My own commitments and efforts have always led me to want to restore to philosophy the wide set of concerns that it had in the days of the Greeks and Romans, concerns with the emotion and the struggle for flourishing lives in troubled times, with love and friendship, with the human lifespan, with the hope for a just world. As I said there, I did actually start my career as a scholar of the Greeks and the Romans, and that is a a long commitment because I, I find I keep going back to these texts, and not just to the philosophers, but to Greek tragedy, which plays a role in the current book. And I guess I find them very illuminating precisely because they were not in some ivory tower, but they were really helping to guide countries and cities. And so they thought a lot about the 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 fact that people were really using these works to live their lives. And um, So anyway, I I have two different things that I've, two different directions in my work. One is the investigation of the emotions, because that was a part of ancient Greek philosophy that was kind of abandoned, and people in more recent Anglo-American philosophy thought that was too squishy a topic, and maybe it was too feminine or something. So they didn't really do much with it. And so I wanted to restore that topic to the center of philosophy in America, and I think by now a lot of people are working on it, so I think I was successful. And then the other part is to think about justice, because obviously emotions link us to the commitments and attachments we make that go outside ourselves and lead us into an uncertain world that we don't fully control. And so then the question is, which of these attachments that make us quite vulnerable. Which of those are productive? I think love and friendship are productive. Family attachments are productive. But some of the uncertainties that we face through our emotions are actually not so productive. If we're afraid of being hungry, if we're afraid of being displaced from our country, those are things that are not productive of human flourishing. And so I guess in my thoughts about politics, I've tried to ask, what are the things that a good society should do to make us sufficiently secure and free from fear that we could actually pursue the things that are most valuable in human life, both political and personal. So so tell us, though, about the concept of fear, um, how, how exactly you define it in this book and how, how to think about it. 
Yeah, okay. So so what's new about this book is that I really came to the conclusion that we have to think much harder. I have to think much harder about fear as something that is very early in human life, that's very hard to control, more so than other emotions, and that lies at the bottom of a lot of things that go on in, in politics. So fear, I define more or less as Aristotle did, as the awareness that there are important things pertinent to your own good life that are out there and that are threatening you, I mean, namely bad things, and that you're not entirely in control of warding them off. So fear just is the thought, the bad is out there, and I really can't do do a whole lot about it. And, and that's what makes fear so connected to, I think, primal infantile experience, where we're all, we start out being aware that we are actually powerless, and there are these bad things like hunger and being cold and being lonely and so on, that are threatening us. And then initially, we can't do anything about it. So when times get uncertain, as I think our political time is very uncertain, economically, with changes like outsourcing and automation, changes in the nature of jobs and globalization and so on, people then revert to that primal place of terror. And fear, we know, is connected to very early evolutionary impulses. It's a part of the connected with a part of the brain that's present in all mammals and probably also in reptiles. So, you know, it's a particularly primitive emotion. And the political relevance, as you say in the book, that anger is the offspring of fear, which may be the way that it manifests itself, uh, certainly right now, politically. Yeah. I mean, there is an anger. Yeah. Uh, anger gets fed by the the powerlessness. So what I wanted to say there was that when we're feeling terrified and powerless, one thing that often happens is that we try to seize control by getting mad. I mean, babies do this already. They start yelling and screaming. And they target people who might not have anything to do with the source of the actual problem. Think about fairy tales. Hansel and Gretel are hungry. They go out into the woods to search for food because their parents have to work at menial jobs. So the problems in this story are lower-class work, hunger. But then what happens when they're in this terrified state in the woods? The story tells us that the problem is not hunger and unemployment at all. The problem is there's an ugly witch who lives in the woods. And if we kill the witch, push her into the oven, then the world is just fine. So I think we learn in our early days to grab for easy fixes to complicated problems. And that's where anger grows out of fear and mobilizes us to target and scapegoat some usually powerless group of people, whether it's immigrants or Muslims or some domestic minority. You know, they did this to us. So we're our problem is because of the infestation of immigrants at our borders and so on like that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, price line. I want to ask about another form of anger, which is kind of, well, what I what I hope would be more productive anger, which is um, – can't speak for you, but I can certainly speak for myself that when I when I open up the newspaper, when I read about what various things that are happening in this country, I feel very angry. And I feel upset and sometimes I feel worried about where we're headed, but I also I also feel um I also feel very angry. And I, I'm wondering how productive you think that might be. And I'm wondering as someone who I think has some sense of what your politics are reading this book and other things that you've written whether you yourself are also angry and whether you think there's anything valuable about that anger given where we are. Well, I think we first have to think what anger is. Now, all the philosophers in the Western tradition and actually in the Indian tradition too who define anger include the thought that somebody has done something seriously wrong to you or someone or something that you care about, but also that it would be good for the doer to suffer. So the thought of a kind of proportional payback is built in to the definition of anger. And so what they're claiming is that there's this strike-back mechanism in anger that you don't just feel bad has happened, but you feel, I'll get the, this person and I'll, I'll give him or her, his or her comeuppance. And I think that's often true, you know. You don't always want to go out and take revenge yourself against the person. Sometimes you want the law to do it. But our dominant position in criminal justice is the idea of proportional payback. It's called retributivism. So the idea of retributive punishment is what gets a lot of people going. It's the only thing that explains the popularity of the death penalty in America, you know, an eye for an eye and, and so on. Now, that part, I think, is absolutely misguided. It never achieves what you wanted to achieve, like killing the killer does not bring your child or family member back to life. Thinking about proportional payback is a way of riveting your mind to the past rather than thinking, well, what is the problem and how going forward can we actually solve the problem? So Martin Luther King Jr., whom I talk about a lot in the book, you know, agrees that people usually feel that way. They came to his movement feeling two things, a kind of outrage that the wrong thing had happened, but also this retributive desire to clobber the other people. But he said once they got to the movement, they have to their anger has to be purified, he said, and he also used the word channelized, meaning it's got to lose that idea that retribution itself is going to fix things. And instead, it has to you know, keep the sense of outrage. That's good. Important to protest. But it has to be what I call protest without payback. In other words, we have to turn forward and think, what actually can we do to solve the problem? And so that's what King was so brilliant at doing, getting people to drop the illusion of that payback makes things better and gets people to think, well, what kind of work, what kind of hope will actually improve the world that we're in? So I think that, that the protest part of anger is very productive. We should keep it and accentuate it. But the payback part to me is just a false lure, and it's a total distraction from fixing the problems that need to be fixed. Right. That's that seems sensible. I, I guess what I was um, that seems that practical course seems seems sensible to me. I, I guess what I was saying, and I don't know how you feel, but as someone who talks about kind of how emotions play a larger role in recognizing human emotions, 
I, I find myself almost distrusting people in some way who are not angry right now. And that's kind of a unsettling thing to feel in your country, because even if anger can have some good uses, like getting people to protest or something, you don't want to be angry all the time. And and I find myself, as I said, slightly mm. distrusting people who are not angry. And, and I don't know how healthy that is, but maybe well, it is healthy. I wonder healthy. what you really think. I mean, I think somebody who doesn't have a sense of outrage, who doesn't want to name injustices and confront them, that would worry me. Sure. And I think a lot of Americans are lazy and passive. But if they if they don't want revenge or retribution, I think that's good because it means they're determined to move forward rather than to look backward. I mean, look, think about a marriage. A lot of people feel that retributive desire that I'm going to just get that betraying X, and they'll do it through litigation or whatever, or they might even just hope that that person's life goes very badly in the future. But that retributive desire actually doesn't fix the problem in the past. It does not restore your lost dignity, and it sure impedes going forward with your own life. So I guess what I like to see in people is exactly what King tried so hard to produce in his followers, determined, courageous resistance, outrage, naming of the injustices, the willing to willingness to take the risk of being assaulted or arrested, like in the march we had in Chicago last Saturday, where many, many people walked on the highway at some risk to themselves of getting arrested. That's fine. And I mean, in fact, even more important, I think, is the tremendous risk to put yourself on the line by running for office. But the idea that we're going to just make Republicans suffer, I think a lot of my students do feel that way. They want to just not talk to anyone on the other side. They think they're monsters, and if they could, you know, blow them all up, they might want to do that. But that actually doesn't solve the problems in our society, which I think have to be addressed by constructive, cooperative work. And and, and so here's where I am with King, that we want to reach out to the people on the other side and try to work with them while not losing hold of our sense of outrage and wrong. What have you made of the protests against uh, Trump officials over the past month or so? And I, well, I'm talking you, about, you know, going up to Steve Bannon in a bookstore, telling Sarah Sanders she's not welcome at a restaurant. Well, I think that's it's probably not a, a good idea because what we really want to do is to preserve a climate of civility, put an end to this terrible polarization and find a way to work in a bipartisan way. To me, one of the most courageous acts in recent months was the fact that John Kasich and John Hickenlooper, a Republican and a Democrat, got together and they worked to defeat that horrible Senate health care bill and they did defeat it. So the fact that you, it takes great courage in this political atmosphere to work across the aisle, so to speak. And I find even in teaching, my students don't expect there to be genuine discussion of both sides. I try to co-teach with someone on the other side so they can't escape that, you know. But I do feel that just to go after these people is not very productive. Now, a, a, a demonstration such as the one in Chicago had a purpose and a point. It was not just anti. It was about saying, actually, we want gun violence to end. And it was a, a purposive march saying we want solutions now to gun violence. And in the end, you know, he, they got the cooperation of City Hall 
So the mayor said, actually, we're not going to be against this march. It's a, it's a good idea. Well, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, it seems like the way our conversation is going is I bring up these things and then you you respond by sort of laying out a more practical course to achieve political ends or to, you know, get a health care bill defeated or to have a government that functions better. And I'm not I'm not arguing about any of those things, that those things are important. And in fact, political change is what we need in this country right now. But it also seems to me maybe a little bit that you're denying or less willing to not wanting to think about this in a certain way, which is that, you know what, these people who work in the Trump administration are going along with separating kids from their parents at the border. And there's some value in society for us as human beings to show our disgust with that. And not just to show our disgust by voting in November of 2020. There's certainly value in that. But also to show our disgust by saying, you know what? Kids are being taken from their parents and you are not welcome at this restaurant. And and I'm not I'm not certain there isn't value in that, despite everything you're saying. I think it's better to accentuate the issue because you're you're really talking about a very very important issue that is the treatment of the children and the protests that we've had in the in Chicago against the detention of kids have been wonderful they've been right on target they've said this is wrong this is bad and i think to focus on the issue is much better than focusing on one individual who may or may not have any power at all but moreover i actually think it's always better to focus on the deed rather than the doer, you hold open the possibility that this person actually might have some under layer of of goodness and they might actually change. If you think about Nelson Mandela, he really was very careful about separating the deed from the doer. And of course, no one could possibly think that he didn't believe and repeatedly say and spend 27 years in prison for the idea that apartheid is morally evil. So that was clear. And again and again, of course, he and his allies demonstrated for that. But to target a particular individual who might or might not be open to change, he didn't go in for that because, first of all, he he thought a lot of these people could actually change, and they did. And a lot of the South African police, for example, ended up being great backers of Mandela. He changed the rugby team and so on. So I think this attitude, which preserves a sense of possibility, of constructive work together. You know, we, our hands are open to you. You don't want to join us, too bad for you, but we would actually like to welcome you to the table if you can get behind us and say this is a really, really important issue of justice. So I think it's the issue that should be the the topic of protest, not, not this or that uh, person. Well, right. Mandela was also the head of a political movement for many years that used violence to achieve its ends, and those were— Oh, uh, I'm not a pacifist. I think violence okay. well, is sometimes I, justified. Okay, but, so you know, I'm just it, saying— It's, a, it's ret- retribution that I'm opposing. Mandela's violence was very carefully crafted to not be—to be strategic rather than retributive. He says that he spent a good deal of his 27 years in prison kind of working toward eradicating his own retributive anger because he felt it very deeply. But it was no good. It wasn't good for the country because actually getting together is what you ultimately have to do. And so if your mind is focused on destroying, then that's not going to happen. 
Sure. I, I was just pointing out that, you know, I, I, the, those no, ends were obviously those... those ends were obviously good, but it was not just embrace well, you know, your enemy. I think, you sh- I think I agree with him. You should use nonviolence as long as you can. And if there's a moment where you're convinced after many, many years that nonviolence has failed, well, then I, I have no objection in that particular circumstance to a limited strategic use of violence against property and, and so on. But, I mean, actually, Martin Luther King Jr. was not totally opposed to violence in self-defense. He just thought strategically it wasn't a good idea for his movement. So neither was a pacifist. I think there are also just wars. I think the Second World War was a just war. So Gandhi thought you should never fight in any kind of war and that if the Japanese invaded Burma, that was just fine. We should lay down our arms and so I That's not me. I'm much more close to King in thinking that there is a legitimate use of violence, but we have to think very carefully about whether that's a place that we're in. Putting aside political change, is there anything best for a society about expressing our contempt or shunning or things like that? Again, put put aside the utilitarian consequences of the next election for a second. I mean, do you just think that – do you think that we should shun people or ask them not to be in our restaurant if they're engaged in political actions that we find disgusting? Well, I think there are many different – there's a gradation of different things, right? I would not want to honor that person. I would be opposed to giving an honorary degree at the University of Chicago to someone like Martin Heidegger, who had committed terrible acts under the Nazi regime. Um, But it's another thing to say that person doesn't have the ordinary kind of freedom of speech. Uh, I would be totally opposed to trying to stop somebody from speaking on my campus unless they're advocating violence. And the the restaurant thing is tricky because, of course, it's a private establishment. So in principle, the owner can can do stuff so long as it's not violating the equal opportunity and anti-discrimination laws. But I think, you know, there I would just say more weakly, sure, she could do it, but it's the wrong emphasis. This is a pawn. You know, why not just talk about the problem and the policy and not not, not this individual person? One thing you say in the book that was that was interesting, and I wanted to get your response to. Um, you were talking. You're talking about anger on the right wing, and you say, that, and I'll just read this quote: "On the left, we find similar themes in the hatred of elites, bankers, and big business, even occasionally of capitalism itself, and in the desire not only to make good things of life available to all, but in the frequent desire to spoil or remove delight for those privileged ones." What I thought was interesting about that was. I think that that's right in some sense, uh, certainly in some sort of philosophical sense that we should want everyone to thrive and there's no value that comes from making other people less happy even if we don't like them or even if they're a mean capitalist or wh- whatever it is. But I also think that in, in in sort of the world we live in where there's a limited number of resources and we know that things like inequality in and of themselves, not just absolute wealth, have an effect on people's psychological health and sort of their sense of the place in the world. I, I think it becomes more complicated and I was wondering what you think about that. Well, I think first of all, we need to try to figure out the issue. Uh, Long ago, of course, John Rawls was the idol of left-wing academics, and his view was that a certain degree of inequality 
actually produced incentives to achievement and was therefore good for all. So in his left-wing just society, inequality was tolerated just in case it raised the living standard of the least well-off. So so that's a, that sets us an intellectual task. We have to ask what degree of inequality really does have that effect. I actually think there's, there's some truth to that, that societies that have tried too relentlessly to equalize everything through state ownership and so on have not been especially successful. But on the other hand, we have to try to figure out how much is too much and what are we going to do about that. And the right place to focus is tax policy. So we need a a fair tax policy. But first, we need the economic facts to be correct. Now, I think one of the most unfortunate aspects of the current administration is they're not interested in the uh, views of experts. They're not interested in what economists say. They have their view, their own view about the economy, which is not based on science, and then they just proceed to enact that. So I think that's actually very bad. Now, there, there are some reasons to think that the corporate tax cut may actually be good for Americans because it, uh, it puts us more on a par with European countries, which have much lower corporate tax rates and so on. So, so anyway, we have to take the problem apart. And to just say, you know, bankers are bad, that that's just like what um, happened to Alexander Hamilton at the founding. Oh, the big banker, let's, let's get him. That's just not very helpful. We need to really listen to economists and we need to figure out what advice they're giving us and then craft a tax policy that is just, that does the right amount of redistribution that's compatible with enough incentives for growth. I I agree with all that. I I just think that um, the attitude of people, you know, living on less than a dollar a day or whatever it is, poor person and a village somewhere in India or wherever else to sort of say you shouldn't resent the rich banker in New York who, you know, you should just kind of want to do as well. I, I, I think that, again, I, I'm not I'm not saying that practically speaking that person should spend their life filled with resentment. I don't think that's helpful. But I also think as kind of advice to someone who's struggling, given the, the insane levels of inequality in the world right now and the amount of wealth owned by the top, you know, 10,000 people, I feel like that's a little insufficient. Well, look, I mean, I teach a course every year or every two years on global inequality, and I'm very worried about that. But let me tell you, I mean, I've spent a lot of time reading the literature on what what we can do about global inequality. And it's very one thing that's clear is that experts do not agree. We really need to keep working on this. But the emerging consensus is that you're not going to solve this problem by simply monetary transfers from one nation to another. Angus Deaton, the, I will add, left-wing, just to make it clear, economist from Princeton who won the Nobel Prize two years ago, has shown very clearly that uh, simply giving a lot of cash for an aid is actually counterproductive because it undermines the political will in a nation to create the kinds of institutions that will, in fact, create a durable and sustainable health infrastructure and a durable 
education infrastructure, and so on. And he does this through very detailed empirical studies of the different Indian states that have different histories in this regard. So, you know, the idea that we can just salve our conscience by giving away a lot of our money, that that just doesn't seem like a, a, a good idea because it, it probably does more harm than good, even though it might make us feel good. So what do we actually do about global inequality? Well, that's a complicated story, and I think it takes us rather far from our current topic. But anyway, I think that in inequality within a nation, however, is quite different. There's quite a lot that we can do about that because a nation has a tax structure and we can adjust the tax policy to have, as I said, the the amount of redistribution that creates the right incentives for economic growth, which, of course, the that is something that's always changing, so we have to keep studying it all the time, and um, that, that does uh, have the effect of raising the floor. Now, one of the most important things that I think a nation can do to alleviate inequality is to have a decent social safety net prominently including universal health care. So to me, that's about the first thing that we should do, that we should work across the aisle. I mean, I, that's why I liked what Hickenlooper and Kasich are doing. And frankly, Hickenlooper is my number one choice for the Democrats in the next presidential election because he's got that issue front and center and he's a master of that issue. And to me, that's the number one issue. I, anyway, I have bad so news we, about uh, Kasich's presidential hopes in the Republican Party. but yeah. No, not Kasich. Hickenlooper, yeah. Hickenlooper. No, I'm saying Hickenlooper is no, my I, I, I know. choice I was, for the Democrats. I know. I was making a joke about how uh, oh, oh, sorry. John Kasich is not a uh, normal Republican at the moment. No, I, I don't think he is. But I, I'm not talking about him. I'm, yeah. I'm saying I think he I, I think he, he worked well with, with Hickenlooper. But I think Hickenlooper is the sort of Democrat we need who's fixed on a, a real policy issue that and is not thinking in vague utopian ways. I think they are Democrats, and I uh, although I admire Bernie Sanders in many ways, I think this was true of him, who talk in vague utopian ways about socialism without defining it, and indeed while saying things like universal free college education that are actually economically very regressive because it just means that rich and upper middle class people don't pay anything. And so that's not really what we need. We need to subsidize the college education of people who can't afford it. And we shouldn't waste the contributions of the rich people who can certainly afford it. So anyway, I I think realistic policies to make college education affordable for everyone and to give health care to everyone are the two issues for me. Martha Nussbaum teaches at the University of Chicago, and she's the author of the new book, The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. Martha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, thanks, Isaac, very much indeed. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at ichotner. Thanks for listening.